What are the biggest issues in the world right now? Here's one we hadn't foreseen a year ago. Clearly the war in Ukraine, Russia's war in Ukraine is top of stack. It's the most dangerous potential for escalation that we've seen in a long time. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, we hear from historian and economist Adam Tooze on what he sees as the biggest challenges facing the world in the next 12 to 24 months. It's possible, but we'll be lucky if we're out of the woods on this. I still don't assume that we are simply going to return to normality at this point. Yes, COVID is still with us, and so are economic problems related to both the pandemic and the war in Ukraine. The world is facing rapidly rising food and energy bills. Adam Tooze considers some of the policy responses. Efforts to reduce petrol and diesel prices by lowering taxes and so on, I think is the wrong way to go. It's understandable, and this is part of a broader calculus of everyone holding their nerve and not losing their minds. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating or review and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum. And with Adam Tooze on the biggest issues facing us all right now. It has ramifications that we are only just beginning to work our way through. This is Radio Davos. In a few weeks' time, the World Economic Forum will be hosting its first in-person annual meeting for more than two years. It's usually held at the start of the year, but COVID forced another delay. And now, instead of the snow, it should be alpine spring flowers that greet the politicians, the business leaders, the academics, the campaigners and the world's media in the mountain town of Davos in May. Looking ahead to this extraordinary Davos, which is happening at an extraordinary moment, my colleagues Jim Landale and Abhinav Chug of the World Economic Forum's Strategic Intelligence Platform have spoken to several leading thinkers to ask what they see as the biggest issues that will be discussed in Davos and that will dominate the global agenda in the months afterwards. One of the people they spoke to was the historian and economist Adam Toos, host of Foreign Policy's weekly economics podcast Ones and Twos, and the author of books including Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World, and more recently Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. Adam Toos had lots to say on lots of issues. Here's Jim Landale. So Adam Toos, from your perspective, what would you say are the key challenges that leaders uh, and decision makers attending Davos should be focusing on in the next 12 to 24 months? Well, I think clearly the war in Ukraine, uh, Russia's war in Ukraine is top of stack. It's the most dangerous potential for escalation that we've seen in a long time. It's less, as it were, the shock, the almost civilizational shock that Europeans are feeling at the sight of conventional warfare and the destruction of cities on European soil, which after all, unfortunately, has been the lot of people in the Middle East for some time, in part as a result of our doing, um, that I think should concern us. But the fact that it is now the announced strategy of the Western alliance led by the United States and emphatically led by the United States, successfully led by the United States, to inflict a defeat on Russia. And that may be desirable, and it's hard not to wish for that, but it is an astonishing objective. I mean, in the history of NATO, in the history of Cold War relations, this is a very um, important departure. It may not be entirely unique in that during the phase of the Cold War in Afghanistan, for instance, we intended to attrit the Soviet power 
and humiliate the Soviets. But we did it far more delicately than we're doing in this case. The stingers were supplied then furtively and undercover, whereas what we're doing now is really just lining up openly and um, supplying with the Ukrainians with, at this point, not everything they would like, but a remarkable arsenal of conventional weapons with the explicit purpose of stopping Russia's army, which means killing Russians and inflicting a humiliating setback on Putin's regime. And this is the number two nuclear power in the world. So that is a radical departure in terms of our willingness to bear risk globally. And it has ramifications that we are only just beginning to work our way through. Um, even if we reach a ceasefire, if we were to reach a situation in which a ceasefire could be negotiated, let alone a peace, this will remain in the system. You know, everything Russia at any point previously said about our disguised intentions with regard to them has now become manifest. Um, the American president has said that Putin should not be in charge. And our intention at this point is to inflict a defeat on them. It isn't, as it were, the economic impact of Ukraine, which is severe enough, or the shock to the European system. And all of this is very real, but it's also quite local. This more general escalation of the tension between the two great nuclear superpowers is, is, a, is a dramatic historical departure. Turning to, to other big challenges facing leaders, probably all in their different ways affected by the invasion of Ukraine and the fallout from it. What else would you put on the table in terms of, in terms of you know, big concerns that need to be thought about and addressed? I know, I know in your most recent podcast, you, know, you addressed inflation. You talked about the, the looming debt crisis with particular focus on Sri Lanka. I think in terms of, as it were, the global agenda, the unfinished business of 2020, or rather what 2020 exposed, is the inadequacy really of the safety net, the financial safety net in the global dollar system. It works, as we've now twice demonstrated, for the rich country insiders who are amply provided by liquidity swap lines and everything else. That's been stress tested twice now and it's stood up. You can ask a whole bunch of social equity issues, questions about that. Why are we bailing out certain people's wealth, so on and so forth. But but the the real the un, the question that was fundamentally unanswered in 2020 is is the question of low income and developing countries. Problem is problem quote unquote. Well, the reality is that because of the the the, the fact of underdevelopment and poverty, the economies you know maybe inhabited by a short just short of a billion odd people don't weigh heavily in the balance. Right, they don't weigh heavily in the economic balance. So you don't get the enlightened self-interest driving support action that we saw, that we've seen twice over within the inner core. But I think it would be immensely short-sighted if we, um, even from a, from a narrow perspective of self-interest, if we didn't understand the potential risks of destabilization in a Sri Lanka, a Tunisia, an Egypt, a Nigeria, like it's just bad, very bad politics not to appreciate the significance, just the the sheer unpredictability and complexity of each of those places and the sorts of risks, if that is how you're going to map the world, like um, that could emerge from them. You know, the beginning of this year, we've seen a dramatic escalation in tension in the Sahel region in terms of security policy across that strip. You know, the expulsion of the French essentially from one of their key positions there. 
all of that zone is caught up in this logic of underdevelopment, poverty and stress. So the, the, the question there is, you know, can the IMF, can the World Bank, can they be equipped to um, ad- respond more adequately? That's the first line. Two years ago, we would have said the G20 is the forum in which to do the deal. But of course, the G20 now presumably is dysfunctional because of the tension with Russia. So then that really puts the onus on the G7 and the G8. And it's been a long time since the G7 has had to act as a core. And it's no longer, you know, it's no longer in any way representative of the world economy. So figuring out the geometry of that relationship is very important, I think. And then I think I'd be remiss, you know, having written a book about COVID, not to remind everyone, not, you know, to not to, not to bring up the point that there is still an epidemic ongoing and totally disrupting life in China. And every single person that gets sick is the risk of a mutation that could totally destabilize us as well. And so a continued rigorous, disciplined focus on COVID variant risk and the need to continue high pressure development of vaccines, broadband vaccines that can cover a whole range medications to deal with people who get severely ill because you know we'll we'll be lucky it's possible but we'll be lucky if we're out of the woods on this i still don't assume that we are simply going to return to normality at this point and in any case the lesson we should surely have learned is that everyone who was warning about this as a major global risk was absolutely right and it's a trillion it's a multi trillion dollar risk so it's 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 epic from the from the point of view of it's much more immediate almost, and I don't mean this in a because climate change is obviously the big long term, but but a sequence of pandemics would inflict economic losses comparable to worst case climate scenarios. Even one was bad enough to inflict damage, which you know is a total tale. If you, to get the kind of damage we saw in 2020 from climate, you need to go far out on the spectrum of worst case scenarios. And that's that was our reality, right? Which we, which we, from which we're still recovering. So anyway, those will be three items. In terms of the ability or performance of international institutions, the sort of global government structures to deal with all of these interlinked interlinked problems, do you have any any sort of um, observations on where we are in terms of their health? Yeah, I mean, with regard to the financial side of things, what's been revealed once again, is the de facto global status of the Fed, right? The thing that really saw us through 2020 was both the liquidity support provided by the Fed in the form of swap lines, and on the other hand, just simply the global influence of American monetary policy. And so one should not underestimate when thinking about the global, the significance of very large national actors. The Fed, the ECB, the Bank of China, the Bank of Japan, possibly, but those three anyway are globally significant actors. Each one of them has macro regional and in the Fed's case, global implications from its policy. You know, a major devaluation of the renminbi in the next couple of weeks, which, you know, seem to be, you know, this is the, the news of the last couple of days would send a shockwave through the East Asian economies. It's not something anyone wants to see anyway. So that's one point. And I start there because I think the answer on the IMF and the World Bank side is that they have not made the problem worse, I think one would say. So they are not crisis amplifying factors, but are they equipped to do the kind of large scale interventions that we would want to see 
I don't think they are. Mark Maglock Brown had quite a good assessment in foreign policy a few weeks ago where he said, look, they just need they just need much larger lending capacity. I also think that we have to address their ability to take risk. I mean, one of the utterly anomalous facts about, say, the World Bank is that they're so precious about their triple A rating that they're not actually able to contribute to debt restructuring by way of their own their own outstanding loans and this this is this is crazy right what they need is a standing backstop from their shareholders in other words the rich countries of the world to absorb those kind of risks so that of course world bank loans can also be put into the mix because the problem right now is the sheer complexity of global debt even in low income countries right we've got this nasty mesh of multilateral debt bilateral paris club debt Chinese debt, bank loans, bond issuance. It's a, you know, a real cat's cradle, a real mess of overlapping obligations and gaining leverage over that so as to structure a comprehensive write down in a way that on terms that mean that that ambitious low income countries are actually willing to take them on and don't end up in the Sri Lankan position of paying billions of dollars to the last minute until they absolutely have to default, which is totally counterproductive is a huge governance challenge. And it's not new. It's been around for a generation now, right? The conversation started in the late 1990s with Kruger's suggestions about sovereign default and restructuring. And we've not made enough progress on that front. It's really two jurisdictions which could drive this, the US and the UK. It's English law and New York state law, which governs almost all of these private debts. And some sort of sustained push. There's been moves from the G30, from the Bretton Woods group, but I don't see the leadership from um, that one would want on this issue. And again, it's because in the end, people will treat this as not systemically relevant because the players are too small economically. So you don't get the blowback. But um, that's so short-sighted, I think, and just doesn't calculate the ramifying potential risks. Think about a Tunisian crisis and its potential implications for the EU. It's It's... Silly not to understand how how important it is to be proactive and constructive in a situation like that. I guess the same could be said for food security, energy. The food security situation, I think it's a very complex picture, right? Because the obviously that is something we need to pay attention to. Um, you know, the obvious thing to do is to think about, you know, more productive ways of restructuring the global subsidy system, a, you know, a market that, you know, creating a global market that genuinely encouraged low-income surplus food production, right? Because the it's a it's a very weird market, that. Um, because the amount that's traded, which shows up in all of these alarmist accounts of the potential food crisis, is a tiny fraction of overall global production, most of which stays within the big blocks. So the very least, I think, we need to think about how um, policy could be jigged in the EU, North America, Latin America, and China so as to ensure that the relatively small amount that needs to be pumped into global markets is actually available at prices the low-income countries can afford. Um, but poverty is their real problem, right? It isn't, this is again and again the same with energy. It's not per se the energy or the food price that is the issue, which often is sending a quite useful signal to markets. But um, the fact that they can't, they don't have the financial um, resources to, to cushion those shocks. On the question of inflation, um, is there anything more you could say in terms of the ways in which governments are trying to address inflation, taking lessons from the past, and whether or not those lessons are still applicable, relevant, effective today? 
I think, frankly, and given the range of risks we've canvassed for the rich countries to be, you know, um, treating inflation as some sort of like mega risk on the horizon is a little self-indulgent, really. <laughs> I mean, this isn't to say that it doesn't matter and that especially for vulnerable people at the bottom of the income distribution, these shocks are quite severe in rich countries as well. But the sort of alarmist calls for draconian monetary policy action mercifully have been resisted by the central banks to date, right? I mean, the striking thing about the moment is that, say, the Fed talks tougher now, but it hasn't really done very much. And the ECB likewise has been hovering on the edge of maybe ending, you know, uh, quantitative easing. But And it will, I think, and I, I think probably prematurely. But, but it's interesting that we haven't seen the knee-jerk dramatic action, and I think that's to be welcomed. That's really a learning, a learning process we've gone through. And it also just screams out of the data, you know, and, and it's even more pronounced now, of course, in the last couple of months. It's just, it's an energy-driven story right now, the spike. There was some widening of the scope of inflation over the winter, but it hasn't escalated. In fact, in America, it seems to be coming down again. So broadly, the transitory inflation story is still the right one though the spike is higher and the length may be a little longer. And that then I think should also inform our policy response, which is go easy on monetary policy, do enough to keep the bond markets from losing their heads and, and provoking a sell-off and a, in a, an, un, in an involuntary interest rate spike, but then focus attention on income support in a way which is minimally distortionary, right? So in general, far better to provide low-income houses with uh, households with income support than, say, to freeze diesel prices across the board, which sends all the wrong signals. We have to stay, have to keep our eye on the ball of a socially equitable energy transition. That has to be the long-run objective here. And so I think of this as almost a laboratory for experimenting with those kind of techniques. And you know, there are some good examples of, of, uh, of, of relying on you know, already structured energy markets in some places like Spain, for instance, to contain the impact on lower income households. Um, but general efforts to reduce, you know, petrol and diesel prices by lowering taxes and so on, I think is the wrong way to go. It's understandable. And this is part of a broader calculus of everyone holding their nerve and not losing, not losing their minds in this moment, which is very important in, in America, where the problem of we haven't even mentioned the problem of American democracy remains a very important one and will come next meeting. Um, everyone will be talking about this, right? Anything that helps the struggling effort to uh, avoid a, you know, a further derailment of American democracy is to be welcomed. There's some really tough trade-offs here. Yeah. Let me just quickly turn to my colleague, Abhinav. Do you have any follow-up questions, Abhinav? Just one question. Since you've written about this recently, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on to avoid another crisis of the Anthropocene. Where do you stand now on, on degrowth as an imperative, uh, especially for rich countries? I think degrowth is very bad politics. I sympathize with its objectives and its diagnosis, but it's terrible politics. As a global slogan, it's, I find, uh, irresponsible and, and uh, just reflects a misunderstanding about the situation of the majority of humanity for whom degrowth can't be an option. The only, the only possible option can be smart growth. For, the European, for Europe and Japan, you could say that something like degrowth is already an achieved reality. Um, you know, their, their rates of growth in recent years have been so modest as to not pose a fundamental challenge. What we need to do there is to curtail various types of specific high income consumption 
which are particularly expensive, like the um, massive amounts of leisure, air travel, and so on and so forth. Um, we clearly need to adjust our eating habits and so on in, in ways which are, people perceive as very radical, but but are essential. I think the where degrowth is really, as it were, where the where the question really bites is in societies like the United States with very high per capita CO2 emissions and relatively buoyant growth rates, and also a politics that, that is completely bought in on that. And I have to say that you, know, you, cannot, you cannot imagine, it's just simply inconceivable to imagine you know, a successful American political campaign run on such a basis. So for me, the, the slogan has an appeal um, in helping the Europe, Europe, for instance, and Japan to think constructively about its future. Jason Furman in the US was brave enough to say that American policy for the average American should focus on redistribution as well, but you cannot say that out loud. The actual applicability, the relevance of this as politics seems to me quite, quite unclear. That's, uh, that would be my answer. It's not, to me, a viable politics as such. Should we be focused on quality of life, distributional issues, and on decarbonization of what we do at our current level? Absolutely, we should. Should we do that under the slogan of degrowth? I don't think so. Adam Tooz was speaking to Abhinav Chug and Jim Landale of the World Economic Forum's brilliant strategic intelligence platform. To get more from them and their conversations with some of the world's sharpest minds, visit intelligence.weforum.org. Please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a rating and a review and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Look for that on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with editing by Jerry Johansson. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week, but for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.